For big occasions, they demand our effort and energy. They demand our attention. And if we want big occasions to run smoothly, then we need to put in the work. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus has a massive, massive occasion ahead of him and he prepares for it too. So if you'd like to turn with me to chapter 6 of Luke, starting at verse 12, which is on page 998 of the Pew Bibles, we read this. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Prayer precedes preeminence. I had to alliterate there, seriously. You know, I tried to find a word of, of, you know, prayer precedes stuff that's awesome, you know, stuff that's really, really good. Preeminence was the better one that fit. Um, But prayer precedes preeminence. See, Jesus, he spent all night praying. The task ahead of him was immense. He couldn't bring lasting change that was required for our world without prayer and without the assistance of his disciples. See, Jesus had such a short time to accomplish a great deal and prayer was crucial to his success and to his very activity. When morning came, he chose 12, appointing them Apostles. See, following a night, an entire night of prayer, Jesus calls all of his disciples together. And from this group of people, the people that have been following and learning under Jesus, he chooses 12 of them and he designates them this special designation of apostles. And this was a big decision, one that Jesus obviously did not take lightly So he prayed for an entire night leading up to calling the apostles. Now I don't know about you, but when was the last time that you spent an entire night praying? Has anyone ever done an entire night of prayer? When we were young, we did several nights of prayer in St David's Park, in Hobart, my parents ran it and we would do the overnight shift. It was a 24 hours of prayer that they did in, in Hobart. And uh, so we would do the overnight shift. And so we'd rock up as a family about 8pm at night and we'd just go through until 6am in the morning when we got replacements to run the thing for the next shift. And we did that a few years running. And uh, it was an interesting night as us as a whole family, you know, would, would be in this park outdoors in Hobart at night. It was not warm. <laughs> but we did a whole night of prayer on a few occasions. Now I can't say I prayed the whole night 
being a probably 12-year-old or, or thereabouts, I, I don't think anyone would, would be able to maintain that. Um, but I didn't sleep. I know if, if, you're, if I'm in bed at night and I start praying, usually the next thing that, it, that does come is sleep. Um, anyone been there? You know, yeah. So, so that's been our common experience. Praying the whole night is not a common experience. What we normally do is we pray and fall asleep. Yet Jesus, he spent an entire night praying to God before he made his selection of his disciples. It truly shows how important it was to him to get this right because these people were really going to basically be his family for the duration of his ministry and would carry his ministry forward for all generations in the future. And so when there are important decisions that we must make in our lives, how much time do we dedicate to prayer about those decisions? Are we setting aside time to pray over our circumstances, to pray over the decisions that we need to make that have a large impact on our future? Prayer is vital for fruitful ministry fruitful family and fruitful endeavours. You know, I find the longer I pray, the more at peace I am with the decisions that I make because prayer realigns our priorities with those of the Father. It acknowledges his sovereignty and submits to his will and his sovereignty over all situations and enlivens our faith to make bold and gutsy decisions, stepping out of our comfort zones to do the things that God is calling us into that without God would fail miserably. Prayer precedes preeminence. What this passage also highlights to us is the importance of family. See, Jesus chose a family of disciples. And he made them apostles. He made them messengers, ones who were sent as the literal interpretation of the Greek word apostolos goes, a messenger, one who is sent. That's what apostle means, one who is sent, who is a messenger. And we're given a list of this new family, a list of the disciples who are also designated apostles. And when you look through the list, a few names jump out. Uh, Simon, whom he named Peter, is the most prominent disciple and and he heads each listing of of all the disciples. Luke also uses the name Peter for him um, throughout his his book and we find Andrew, he's the brother of Peter. James and John are also brothers and were also Galilean fishermen and they were partners of Peter and Andrew. We have Philip from Bethsaida the same city or birthplace as Peter and Andrew, and we have Bart, or Bartholomew, as the more traditional version of it. Bartholomew is probably a family name that occurs in each list of the Synoptic Gospels, and he's probably the same person that John calls Nathaniel. So that's why a lot of these disciples had two names. Um, You have Simon, Peter, one example. Um, but Bartholomew is probably the family name and that's why there's some, a, a little bit of a difference between um, John's Gospel and, and the others. 
There's also Thomas and Matthew. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus, who's not to be confused with James, the brother of Jesus, of John, um, or James, the brother of Jesus, or James of Mark chapter 15. Lots of Jameses. And we have Simon the Zealot. Now that word comes from the Greek word zelotes, or zelotes, if you want to pronounce it poorly. Um, and zealots were political activists who were radically opposed to Roman rule. Apart from Jesus' call and influence on their lives, Matthew, a tax collector, working for the service of Rome, and Simon, a zealot, seeking to overthrow Rome, were enemies of each other. Lovely family dynamics here, isn't it? You've got Matthew, a tax collector, and you've got Simon, uh, a zealot, and these two people Jesus brings together and says, hey, spend every moment of every day together with me from now on. That's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? And then, of course, we have Judas, the son of James, who doesn't appear in Matthew or Mark, but we instead have Thaddeus, which is probably his other name. You know, they often had more than one name. And finally we have Judas, the other Judas, the, the one, the Iscariot version, referring to where he was born. I mean, talk about a, a motley crew. You know, a couple of brothers, a few sets of brothers, some enemies, a traitor, and they're all together and called by Jesus to be his disciples, to be his messengers of hope. You know, doesn't this sound like most families? You know, we, we don't get along perfect with everyone in our family, do we? If you're really honest. You know, and if you do, then blessings to you. Maybe you're the one. <laughs> Every family is just that little bit dysfunctional. And this is no different. People from all walks of life were called by Jesus to follow him and were empowered by him for ministry. Christianity, following Christ, is not just for poor people or rich people or tradesmen or fishermen or professionals. Following Jesus Christ is for everyone. A healthy family is a diverse family and this was certainly a diverse family. Just look at the flashpoints of conflict that would naturally have occurred and would have easily arisen with these 12 men that Jesus called together to build into to messengers of hope for the next generations. No wonder Jesus had to spend all night praying before he put this crew together. And if there's one thing that you can do for the leaders of our family here, please pray for us. Each day during your quiet time, add in a prayer for us. Pray for protection, pray for unity, pray God would guide and lead us. That would be a great blessing for our leaders here. So following Jesus choosing these messengers, this family, he walked down the mountain with them to a field and he started teaching. Verse 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there 
and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. On this field are three groups of people. There are the apostles. There's a great crowd of his disciples and there is a great multitude of people. So Luke here is emphasising Jesus' ever-growing popularity. And there would have been even Gentiles included in this number from Tyre and Sidon. The crowd's purpose is to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases. Do you notice again, what's first? First they came to hear Jesus. Then, in addition to that, unclean spirits were cured. People in these crowds, they, they tried to get close to Jesus and touch him to receive healing. As Luke tells us that power was coming from Jesus and was healing them all. I love that picture of Jesus swarmed by a great multitude of people and the record that, that power was coming from him and healing them all. Then Jesus begins to teach what Luke calls the Sermon on the Plain. Other Gospels call this the Sermon on the Mount. Either way, the location, maybe it was a flat part halfway up a hill, you know, I don't know. Um, but, but really where it occurred is not so important. The content is the real gold here. Luke 6 verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This really means... Blessed are those of you who are poor in material things and who are also my disciples and are putting your trust in God. See, in the Old Testament, the poor frequently referred to the pious poor, those who looked to and depended on God. Jesus is not saying that poverty in itself is a state of happiness or blessing. It is a blessing only when accompanied by trust in God. Is it possible to be poor and happy? Yes, when your trust is in God. Jesus' statement elsewhere that he was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, like we see in chapter 4 verse 18, is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1, which has a strong spiritual dimension as well. Good news would come to the poor who long and wait for God. Such people, those who put their trust in God, belong to the kingdom and will receive the blessings of the kingdom. And it's important to note that Jesus consistently gave special care to those on the fringes of society. People who bear God's image but who are treated as trivial and objects of oppression. Jesus always cared for them. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Jesus is talking about his disciples who are physically hungry and also hungry for God's help and presence. 
This condition of hunger will not last forever, for God will satisfy that hunger. God will supply our needs, first with his abundant presence in this life, and then also with meeting our physical needs in this age, and certainly the abundance in the age to come. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Tears, sadness, weeping, mourning, these are all temporary conditions. In the kingdom of heaven, God will wipe away every tear and instead of weeping there will be laughter, instead of sadness there will be joy. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoicing that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Whenever Christians are hated, excluded, insulted or rejected as evil by others, the response should be to rejoice. Hey, isn't that a really weird thing for Jesus to say? You know, when people are hating you, excluding you, insulting you or rejecting you because of Jesus, well, that's when you're doing it right. It's a really bizarre thing to say, but I actually think it is one of the most courageous things in this sermon that Jesus gives. See, in our Christian lives, If our Christian lives are indistinct from our society, then we have failed. If our values are the same as our culture and so don't clash with how we think, how we act and how we go about our lives in this world, then we have missed something major. We do not live in a predominantly Christian culture. In fact, It is at times so anti-Christian and anti-Bible that when anyone pop their head up and speak the truth of the Bible, they are shouted down. We are called bigoted. We are called perpetrators of hate speech. We are called politically incorrect. We are called archaic. We are cast aside from culture and relegated to irrelevance. We are excluded from the conversation. We are written off. And you know what? If that happens to you, then consider yourself blessed. Because what you think and what you are bringing to the table matters. It is the truth of the Bible. And when, where there is opposition to that truth, you know you've hit a nerve. You know that the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction and people don't like it. We're all made in the image of God. We all recognise the truth. But our culture rejects the truth and stands so strongly against it that when we speak it, they are offended because they know they are wrong, their very being is crying out that they are wrong, 
but they can't give in to their echo chamber of regressiveness. Well, they've called it progressiveness, but anyway. See, if what you say and what you think never offends our culture, then is what you say and think actually informed by the Bible? Because if we are true to the Scriptures, it will offend predominant culture. We can apply this to so many of the hot topic issues in our world today and particularly to sexuality. To speak the truth of the Bible when it comes to sexuality, we will be rejected, ridiculed, insulted and they will try to silence us. I was once asked to run a session for a Christian high school on what the Bible teaches about sexuality and relationships. Thank you for whoever asked me to do that one. And so I taught what the Bible teaches. We are created for intimacy by an intimate God. But God has created that intimacy to be expressed only in marriage, in healthy ways. God has created us to enjoy sex. It is his gift to us. But the only true healthy expression that honours God is for it to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. Now when I delivered this session, it went for about 30 minutes or so, I then opened it up for questions. And most of the questions were of a nature very scoffing at what they thought as teenagers you know, think of what? We shouldn't be having sex until we're married? <laughs> That's laughable. The very thought of that whole concept of saving that for marriage was so foreign to them that they basically laughed at me. And they had a couple of arguments. One of them was called, or what I called the same spaghetti argument. It goes like this. Say you eat some spaghetti and it was really good. It was delicious. You loved it. You don't then just go and have the same spaghetti for every meal for the rest of your life. You want something different at some point. This is one of their arguments about sex. Another argument was what I called the new car argument. And it goes like this. Let's say you're looking for a new car. Surely you are going to look at as many cars as you can. Surely you're going to learn about them through online reviews. And surely you're going to then go and test drive the new car to make sure it's compatible with what you want and works well for you. And then you're going to go and test drive other cars to make sure that you've chosen the right one before you buy it. These were the kinds of questions and arguments that these teenagers had when it came to their objections as to what the Bible taught about sex and sexuality. And I won't go into areas of other objections they had. It was eye-opening. See, the Bible teaches that sex is a special gift that God has given to us to be expressed only in the covenant relationship of marriage between a man and a woman who both seek to honour God first. When we stand up for the truth of the Bible, 
And when we express our biblically informed opinions, we are not going to be applauded by our culture. And that's just one example. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Jesus actually matters. You don't find atheists getting angry about fairy tales and and hounding them. They only get angry about the Bible because it is true. Jesus actually matters and he matters to a lot of people who don't recognise it. Now I'm not saying that we should get into futile arguments. I've been there, done that. I'm moving on. But what I'm saying is that we should be prepared to be rejected, hated, insulted and excluded from the conversation because we believe the Bible is truth. Sometimes hope is not a fluffy feeling. Sometimes hope is truth. Even when that truth is rejected, hated, insulted and excluded. And so if we are going to suffer rejection, how is that blessed? It is blessed because our reward is great in heaven. Piling up rewards here on this earth is short-sighted and is foolishness. Our true reward and the only reward that really matters is in heaven, a reward that is eternal. Jesus continues by teaching this very issue, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. If we're blessed by God with eternal reward in heaven and are hated, excluded, insulted and rejected because we seek to honour God, those who seek to honour themselves with wealth, comfort, excess, happiness and prestige have already received their reward. They have already received the profit of their labour. This is a solemn warning to those who are rich against the tendency to delight in and trust in the things of this life more than God. And Luke continues to describe the rich who have no worldly cares but are not rich in faith. They are full but not full in faith. And Luke further casts woe to those who laugh now. Now Luke's not condemning joy and laughter. He's only condemning condescending, boastful and mocking laughter of the callous, complacent rich who care little for others or for God. They indeed will mourn and weep when God's judgment comes. And finally, the fourth woe warns that while true prophets were hated, excluded, reviled, spawned, beaten, tortured and killed, just, you know, a little list of inconveniences, False prophets, on the other hand, were spoken well of, for they prophesied what people wanted to hear. This is a warning against seeking the approval of the world rather than being faithful to God. 
And it's a timely and poignant message for us today. We can so easily be sidetracked by the so-called woke wisdom of this world. Our thinking can be shaped and bent by the constant barrage of messages flooding our senses, telling us how to think and how to act. We're being constantly pushed to fall into line with the world around us. But Jesus says, woe to all that. Woe. That doesn't lead to lasting blessing. It might be nice to be rich and comfortable, full, happy and popular for now, but what about when judgment day rolls around? None of that lasts. Wealth can be spent or lost. Comfort can be lost. Being full doesn't last. We become hungry again. Popularity is so fleeting. So why would we want to follow the pattern of this world rather than the pattern that God has laid before us in the scriptures that lead to lasting blessing and eternal reward? See, Jesus instead lays out for, a path, lays out for us a path of blessing and eternal reward and we're going to delve into that next week as we continue on in Luke chapter 6. But to finish today, I really want us to understand how these two things, these main elements of today's message intersect. So we started with Jesus praying and then selecting from his disciples the 12 apostles. Remember how prayer precedes preeminence? Preparing with prayer brings about superior outcomes. And these disciples become a family, a a diverse family, even with the people who were once sworn enemies. There's a mighty power in prayer. But prayer alone is not what saved us. Prayer indeed can bring about the action of God according to his will, but even Jesus did more than just pray. Prayer helps us prepare. Prayer helps us align our will with the will of the fathers so that when we step out in faith, we carry with us the blessing of hope into our world. A world that is so eager to reject, hate and exclude us and insult us. But a world that so desperately needs the truth of the gospel and the hope of Jesus Christ. And so it is imperative that we stand firm that we stand against the push from our world to conform and instead, with the backing and power of prayer, push on with a message of hope that is in the gospel. Push on with the work and ministry that God has prepared in advance for us to accomplish. To push on and be a beacon of light in a dark world. To push on through the hate. Push on through the exclusion. Push on through the insults and push on through being rejected. Because our rewards are not here on earth. We care not for what our world values most. Our world values itself. Our world says that the most important thing is me. But we know that that's not true. The most important thing is Jesus. God in the flesh. God become man to save us from the penalty of sin and eternal punishment for our sins. God who died on a tree so that we could be free. God who loves us. God who died for us. God who blesses us with eternal reward in heaven. 
If you want riches now, you can work hard for it. If you want comfort, go ahead and seek it out. If you want popularity, then shout what the world wants to hear. But that will be all you get. That, that will be the best it ever gets for you. But our hope is laid up in eternity. Our hope is not in this world, but is in the next to come. Our hope is in the kingdom of God, not this cheap imitation we're living in right now. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are hated, excluded, insulted and rejected. Because we will inherit the kingdom of God. We will be full and never hungry. We will be filled with joy. We will be loved and accepted for eternity. So how does that help your outlook on your life today? How does that impact the way you think about the decisions you have to make? How does that impact your values? Maybe there's some areas where we need to realign ourselves with the truth of the scriptures rather than what the messages the world is barraging us with. Maybe we need to stand firmer in the hope of the gospel and rely less on the comforts of this world. Because being comfortable now is not everlasting blessing. That is its reward for now. Let's invest in a future that is blessed in the way that God says blessings come. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to praise though never ceasing. Lord, I pray that we would submit all of who we are to you in prayer. I pray that we would live with eternity in mind and I pray that we would live our lives that draw hatred, exclusion, insults and rejection because we live out biblical values. We live our lives in honour of you that may, they may bring you glory in all we think, do and say. And I pray that you would give us the right perspective when we do experience these things, that we would be encouraged towards love and good deeds and be encouraged in the hope that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, protect our hearts when we do have these experiences. May you use these moments to help us experience your unconditional love. And Lord, right now we pray for our Prime Minister who is a prime example of this very occurrence. May you strengthen him in his faith and love and hope, Lord Jesus. May he be encouraged to stand firm under adversity and to continue to walk in ways and to lead our country in ways that honour you. And as we go from this place today, Lord Jesus, may you go before us. May you prepare the way for us. May we follow you in glad submission and be a blessing to those around us as we bring the hope of the gospel with us. May our ministry to the people who work in the police station on Wednesday be used by you to bring them hope. Bless this endeavour, I pray. 
And may you bless each one of us in our efforts to live out biblical values as your children, as family together. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.